Hello, my loves. As you know, as of season five, something new that we're trying to do for therapy is to give a shout out to all of the amazing, amazing listeners and followers who have been supporting us on this journey. And for this week's episode, I want to give a special shout out to Uriella Starlight, also known as my auntie, and to Chantel Holly, who's also known as the underestimated woman on Instagram. She has an amazing professional development and personal development program that she spearheads um, for her audience. And I definitely recommend giving her some love and support by following her on Instagram as well. Um, thank you, not just to the two of you, um, but to everybody who is constantly showing their support, whether that's through tuning in whenever we publish an episode or just keeping up with engagement on all the platforms that TRP Recovery is on. So once again, I love you both, Uriella Startlight, and to um, the underestimated woman, thank you so much. And to anybody else out there, if you would like to get a shout out on TRP Recovery's next podcast episode, definitely make sure you follow us on all of the platforms that we're available on, which includes Instagram, Facebook, um, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Hello, my loves. Welcome to another episode of TRP Recovery. It's your host, Nell Kyle. Before we get started on today's topic, I just wanted to take a quick moment to wish you all a happy belated Thanksgiving and to just share some thoughts of gratitude that I've had for this year. Um, First and foremost, after God, you know, for taking us through a very, very tumultuous year in so many different aspects. But nevertheless, here we are and getting ready for the next year. So super grateful for that. obviously grateful for family and friends who have been in my corner um you know since way back when and last but certainly and definitely not least i wanted to say thank you to all of you who tune in faithfully um every two weeks to you know listen to not just my thoughts and opinions and experiences but also making room for all of the wonderful guests who have graced us with their presence and their knowledge and their wisdom. Uh, A huge shout out and a a moment to say thank you to them as well. TRP Recovery definitely would not be at this point if I didn't have faithful listeners and if we didn't have amazing guests who would take time out of their weekends to come and talk about these topics. So That is my long-winded way of sharing my gratitude for all of you. Um, Thank you so much, and I'm excited for us to continue this journey together. So today's topic I'm super thrilled about, and it's going to be on science and scripture. So on this journey of faith that I've had um, for about, I mean, obviously I've been a Christian my whole life, but I would say the intentional moves that I've made in my faith have been maybe for like the past five years or so Um, and I've always had this really weird like curiosity and tug of war between what we believe in faith to know and what science um, shares with us and describes to us and you know has become fact for us. Um, I have a huge respect for both areas and so I never 
felt comfortable choosing um, one or the other. And I always had like this, this perception that science and faith can come together because science truly kind of explains the wonders of faith. Um, and I obviously am not an expert in this area. So as you know, I had to go and find someone who is. And so today we have Dr. Matt Creighton III, um, who is joining us to really explain this tug of war between the physical brain and the mind or flesh and spirit, as we say in the church world. Um, so we're going to be covering what his interpretation of that distinction is between soul, spirit, and consciousness. And to give you some background on Dr. Creighton, he has a impressive resume that is just, it's out of this world. He is a professor of genetics and biology at two HBCUs, Xavier and Dilliard, if you were curious about that. Um, he is an author, an educational, motivational speaker on topics in biomedical science. He's also a STEM consultant for higher education, and that includes creating strategies for effective mentoring of underrepresented graduate and undergraduate students in the STEM field. He is also a biomedical researcher in research areas in research areas of molecular evolution and comparative genomics. And lastly, he is also a small business owner and the founder and president of a nonprofit called CLASS, which is a free after-school homework assistance program for grade school students. So that is just a little bit of his resume. So if there's anyone we want to listen to on this subject, it would be Dr. Creighton. So I'm excited for this, and I hope you all are too. So I want you all to sit back, relax, grab your favorite cup of tea as always, and let's get started on this. Good morning, Dr. Mack. How are you? I'm great. And how are you this morning? Thank you for having me on. I'm glad to have you on. Thank you for asking. I am, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, I'm a little tired this morning, but I am more excited to talk to you today because um, this idea of balancing science with scripture is something that I've been really intrigued by in the past couple of months. Um, I've read your book and there's another book that I'm reading, which I'll share with the audience at a later time because this is your spotlight, but it's just something where, and you could definitely speak to this as the conversation goes, people tend to feel it's one or the other. Um, from my perspective, I believe that science is definitely the explanation of God's miraculous movement in the world. But um, I don't know. You are the scientist. You will help us with this. <laughs> so, yeah. And like you, I have my coffee with me this morning, so we all have energy this morning. <laughs> You're actually way ahead of me because I didn't make it yet, so... <laughs> My God. So do me a favor, Dr. Matt, go ahead, introduce yourself and give us an elevator pitch. I am Dr. Mac Creighton III, and I am a Christian by faith and a scientist by professional training. I serve as executive pastor and director of education at New Beginnings Church here in the great city of New Orleans. And our pastor is Jay Reed. And I also serve as a professor and chair of the biology department at Dillard University, a wonderful HBCU also here in the city of New Orleans. So I um, promote science and spirituality 
in which I get to share both halves of my lives or merge my lives together as a scientist and as a Christian believer. And I believe and use the tagline using science to better understand biblical scripture. Man, that is such a great tagline. (laughs) Do us a favor and take us on like a brief journey of like your life and what inspired you to embark on this career that you have. And most importantly, like we're going to talk about today, your book. Great, great. Well, I, um, as mentioned, I live in the city of New Orleans now, but I grew up, was born and raised in the northern part of Louisiana, um, Shreveport, Louisiana. And to put that into context, northern part of Louisiana is often described as the bottom of the buckle of the Bible Belt. So it's very Protestant and Southern um, Baptist. and very conservative part of the state. So growing up there, I went to church three, four times a week and on Sunday would be there from Sunday school all the way to night service uh, with my family. So uh, both my parents attended our church and um, had a very religious um, upbringing in the household as well as at church. After going off to college, I went to college and then graduate school studying biology and I often heard that science, well, growing up, I've heard that science was the opposite of religion. And I was leery as a science major because as a kid, I was just had a, a inclination and love for science and um, went on to be a science major. And people would say, oh, they're going to try to persuade you from being a Christian believer. You're going to become an atheist if you go into science. And I just didn't see that. Um, In fact, as I studied science um, and a light bulb came on once, I was studying for, I think, finals, either midterms or finals. And I was going through these processes of transcription and translation and looking at how DNA is used to make an RNA and RNA is used to make the proteins and I had to learn all these proteins and all the steps. And I began to say to myself, this isn't random as Darwin in evolution was teaching in chapter one of the um, biology book. say so this is very precise in order. And I began to understand that science is a way of studying. Our natural world is the definition that we give in class. And for me as a Christian believer, I say it science is a tool for studying God's creation. So I began to appreciate and become more in awe of God and his majesty. Uh, and omniscience um, when I began to study or as I continued on with my studies. I went off to graduate school and got a master's and that's when I entered academia and began working um, at Xavier University, HBCU here in the city of New Orleans also. And then to further my career, I went on to the doctorate. It was in graduate school that I had my um, experience with mental illness or mental health issues. I left Louisiana and went to Connecticut. I was on a fellowship, a brand new fellowship for uh, African-Americans to pursue a doctoral education in the state of, uh, well, in New England region. So I relocated and left my family, everything familiar. I then went from what was nicknamed back then New Orleans Chocolate City because it's a predominantly black city. And I was also teaching at a historically black college. So I was around black people 24 seven. I moved to Connecticut and I could 
hardly find anyone <laughs> who looked like me. So it was a culture shock, not only for the demographics, but the food, the music, just the entire, the weather, um, definitely. I had the pressures of graduate school and doing well. Um, my own self-doubts of, can I cut it? I'm a Southern boy, can I make it in New England? The school systems are premier in New England. You have the Ivy Leagues there and so forth. So I had that pressure, felt I was carrying the pressure of the entire African-American community on my shoulders because I was the first African-American to be admitted into the PhD program at the University of Connecticut and subsequently became the first African-American to earn a PhD in genetics from the University of Connecticut in stores, the main campus. So yeah, it's something I'm, I'm, I'm proud of. But the pressure of being the first and um, um, carving that pathway, I felt that I was carrying that responsibility and the weight of all of my people on my shoulders. And um, the third, uh, well, I guess that's about the fifth thing now that uh, was piled on top of that. My first year, my dad passed of a massive heart attack uh, while I was in Connecticut, just moved away. And so came home for the funeral, but had to return to grieve uh, without family and friends. And that process didn't go well and kind of triggered the mental health issues that I was having. And then the last, on top of all of those, is I began to a journey to define my sexuality as a younger person college and, and guy in my 20s and um, at that point I was in my 30s. I had just kind of, as I said, go with the flow. I was fluid and um, just whatever was whatever. And at that particular point I, uh, in my life, I started to look for a foundation and I wanted something more solid and enter into a relationship with a particular individual and needed to figure out, well, who am I? Um, where do I stand and uh, what's my sexual preferences uh, with all of those things um, I entered into a at the time therapist called an altered reality and so they really couldn't explain it and I don't know today if there's a diagnosis for it but um it had, if it had not happened to me, I certainly wouldn't believe it because I was a scientist. So what happened is during the day, I was fine. I would go to the lab and I would do my research, working on my dissertation work. I would function with people all day. I was still going to conferences and, and traveling with the university and the like. It wasn't until I got home at night because at that time I was single and I was living alone in an apartment. I didn't have any close friends. Um, the friends I had made, um, people I had made friends with had um, completed their degree and then they left Connecticut. So I was there alone and I didn't share um, the stressors and the burdens. I didn't share the loneliness that I still felt um, in the hole in my heart from my dad passing. We had a close relationship. And then I didn't have family members there to lean on. So in my mind at, uh, at nighttime, something would click and I would say, well, I'm going to visit my friends. And somewhere, um, it sounds weird for me to even say it and explain it now. I believe that complete strangers 
my neighbors were actually my friends and family. So I would leave and go through the neighborhood at night or late evening and sit on somebody's patio and I could watch the family interacting through their window or patio window or something and believe that I was actually there visiting and a part of the family. And then, you know, after an hour or so, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever, go home and feel like, oh, I visited, you know, and I think for some of them, if I recall, this was over 20 years ago now, um, I made up names. And so I'm going to visit, say, Jim, or I'm going to visit, you know, Diane. Um, and um, at some point, you know, I was seen and um, subsequently arrested. And so I went through the legal system and uh, fortunately for me, I didn't have any prior incidents. Um, and also they looked at my background or the judge looked at my background as a doctoral student, and what I was doing, the letters that were written on my behalf and ordered therapy for me rather than any, well, it was a misdemeanor charge. So it, um, I wasn't um, in jeopardy of going to jail, but it certainly it could have derailed my career and had me expelled from the university and I wouldn't have completed my degree. But because I had great advisors and um, mentors at the university, they embraced me and embraced the counseling that I, well, the journey that I began. Um, and so, in therapy, I began to pull back the layers of each of those things that we talked about and learned that any one of those stressors could have caused distress or de depression or individuals or other mental illnesses and, and to deal with like five different issues simultaneously um, explained why my mind created an altered reality so that I wouldn't feel alone and dismayed. So um, working through that, I was able to break from that altered state and uh, face reality and begin sharing. Oh, just the fact that going through the legal aspect of it brought other people in and we began dialogue and talking and um, that was extremely helpful. So that led me on my journey. Um, it's 15, 20 years later, um, after having completed my degree, teaching for many years, not having any other um, episodes, um, um, if you would, and actually not sharing with anyone because I was extremely embarrassed <laughs> by the mental issues I had because I had identified myself as an academic. Everybody knew Mac as the smart guy. And I'm like, what would people think if they knew that I had a bout with mental illness? Would they still respect me as a professor, as a scientist, uh, with my family? Because actually my family back in Louisiana never knew about anything. They didn't know about the arrest or anything that happened because I was like in and out overnight. And um, I just kept all of the court proceedings and things from them because again of embarrassment of the tie with mental illness and also not having a name for what it was that I was going through um, in this mental episode or experience. But God led me to start sharing that story through my book. And so the first book, which like, God, are you for real? You want me to write a book about the brain? I'm a geneticist. And so, <laughs> 
not a, a neurosurgeon or, or anything. So I began that, but in writing the book, I realized God wanted me to begin talking about mental health and talking about and sharing my experience with mental health issues. And um, so we're here today with that brain, mind, soul, and spirit, the interface between science and scripture. Wow, Dr. Mack, I remember the first time you explained your story to me and I was just so moved. I applaud you going through a similar experience myself. And please correct me if I'm wrong. I think like um, it's also referred to as kind of like psychosis. Um, and um, it's it's really something else, just yeah. like you described. And to crawl out of that and to come out of it, one, on the other side, and then two, to use your experience to empower other people, and then to also shed light on how God is still moving. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing else to say but how proud I am of you, to be honest. Thank you. Thank you. And as well for you. Coming <laughs> out on the other side, it's, it's wonderful light, and it's therapy in itself to share with others. Absolutely. So I'm trying my hardest because my editor, my sister, will kill me if we go too long. So we're going to move to the next question. <laughs> you explain the tug of war between the physical brain and the mind or the flesh and spirit, as we say in the word. So can you give us a high level overview of this? Yes. Um, so we have our physical brain. Well, Interestingly, um, the area of psychology um, studies the brain and the mind, and um, there's still dissension between those. Um, there is a school of psychologists who believe that the brain and mind are one entity, and it's just our thoughts and our emotions are just a, a manifestation or an output from the physical tissues of the brain, whereas the other school of um, psychology, which lends itself more to theistic beliefs, is that our brain is a flesh structure and then the mind exists as a uh, non-tangible and invisible entity um, that governs our thinking and our emotions. So there's the war between that, that sets up the war between mind and flesh. So your mind wants you to do one thing, but our fleshly bodies have cravings for things, whether it's um, our sexual desires, whether it's hunger, um, there are different uh, hormones and neurotransmitters that are emitted during um, different times or different activities. And then we desire that hormone as a reward. Um, if it's uh, like addictive behaviors, um, and so we have our physical flesh that we're dealing with and then our spirituality and our sense of right and wrong. Um, we war again sometime to do things that we know that we really should not be doing. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to skip to another question that's further down only because it relates to this point so much. And it's the discussion between the mind and psyche through Freud's theory of personality. Can you break that down for us? Certainly. So um, according to uh, Sigmund Freud, the um, psychoanalyst, um, noted psychoanalyst, he divided um, our personality into three parts. There's the id, the ego, and superego. 
The id is our instinctive behaviors that we were born with, so everyone has that. And it's the um, kind of pleasure principle, it's me, it's what I want, I want it immediately, it's immediate gratification that we have. Um, it's often described with a baby um, crying, so the baby doesn't um, take into consideration whether it's two, three, or four o'clock in the morning, if the baby is wet, the baby is hungry, it just starts crying and crying louder until that need is met. We do the same thing as adults. Whenever we don't have our way with things, we want the cashier to go faster and I want to be first or whatever the case may be. Next is the ego. And the ego is our sense of self, who we believe we are. And we develop this early on in life um, between the age of three and five. Uh, we're developing our ego. Um, and so it's basically taught. So it's the integration of the environment and um, your family and who you are identified as. Um, who do people call you or how do they refer to you um, as a little kid? Oh, you're such a beauty or you're gonna be a heartbreaker and you kind of get that um, thought in your mind you're really smart or you're nothing at all. You're just like your dad. And so we begin to internalize who we are um, with our ego. And then the super ego is the part of our personality that imposes our sense of right and wrong and more morality. So again, between five and seven years old, um, there's fluidity in those numbers in development for children. But um, it's known that early in life, our personality, three parts of our personality are set. So in the superego lies our religious training, um, also the respect for the law and whether we carry those things out. And we can begin to um, ask questions about people who um, can do a mass shooting without feeling remorse or those who are um, blatantly offenders of the law. Um, and how is the, or is there an underdeveloped superego that says to a, I think it's national now, of 15 year old, you're not supposed to carjack that person, but yet they do it. And it's like, so what's going on with the development of the, um, the personalities? God, <laughs> I'm telling you um, to the audience to definitely pick up the book. What I loved about it is that it's a short read, but it's so impactful. And you bring up so many different polarizing points. And yeah. you allow people to think for themselves. It's like you have like your own interpretation, but you allow the reader to try to think about it and come to their own conclusions. And it's there's still questions I haven't even answered here. So once this is done, I'm going to go back. But <laughs> I just had to put that out there. It's so good. Yes, that, well, that came from um, my perspective as a professor, um, particular professor of science. It's not my job to tell you what to think or how to feel. My job is to present you with the data. Once you have the data and the information, you can decide which side of a you know a issue you want to be on, whether it's um, pro-choice, um, uh, uh, pro-life. Um, you know, 
I'm going to give you the information about development of the fetus. And, and we actually talk about that in the book as well. When does life begin? And when you have the information of what week does the, the brain form, when does the heartbeat begin? And you have those things. It's up to the reader and the individual to decide what do you believe? When do you think life begins? Um, uh, and there are so many other issues. So I didn't want to impose my views and my opinions on the public, but yet present the information to you and let you decide. So thank you for bringing that point out. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you did it magnificently, and I'm not just saying this to like gas you up. It's very, <laughs> it's true. It's very rare to like, regardless of like um, what side you might be on to find people who just allow you to soak in the information and for you to be able to decipher that for yourself and without any judgments. So I, I really do appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm trying. I'm really, Baba, if you're listening, I'm trying. I'm really trying. This conversation is really good. <laughs> you stated in your book that in society, also within the church, there still remains a need to dismantle the stigma that is often associated with mental disorders and illnesses. In some religious settings, people equate depression with a lack of faith and lack of relationship with God. So can you dive a little bit deeper deeper, and explain how you came to that observation? Yes, over the years, I've um, attended various churches as I've lived in different states. And oftentimes, and I'm a Protestant by belief, I'm, I'm Baptist and I've you know, um, attended charismatic um, churches as well. And there are times where I think, I don't know if it's inadvertent or the person or misspeaking or it's intentional belief, but um, pastor would say, well, you're going through depression or you just need to break depression or cast down the, um, the spirit of depression, um, pray more, have faith. And I'm like, well, no, um, as a person of science, I'm like, there's a difference between a bad mood, which you can shake off and say, hey, I'm going to you know, not let that get to me. I'm going to move forward. So moods are day by day situational as compared to mental illness, a diagnosed mental illness. It has biological implications. There may be imbalances of hormones or neurotransmitters within the body, whether it's in the brain, the thyroid gland, um, others or combination. Um, um, looking at even hyperactivity, so HD, um, um, ADHD um, children, and sometimes oh, people will just dismiss it as, oh, you're just being bad, you're, you're not praying enough, you're not having enough faith. And for those people who are sitting there dealing with um, the mental illness, it makes them question their faith and makes them question, well, does God love me? Um, so I began as in my study, looking at the story of Job, and we all believe and know that Job is the character or um, the go-to guy in the Bible when we want to talk about faith and redemption, um, the great comeback story. But as um, Job was going through his trials, he lost his family, um, all of his cattle, his wealth, and now um, he had sickness in his body. He began to rule, as the scripture says, rule the day that he was born and question um, is my life worth living? And reading through those scriptures, I, on my professional training, said these were cries for help, um, declarations for suicide. Um, and as a 
a mandated reporter, if I heard a student saying, making those similar statements, I would have to report that this student has, um, may have suicidal tendencies. But yet that part is often skipped over in the messages and sermons that you hear about Job. But I think it will be, be very important because we know that Job didn't lose faith, even though he was going through trials and tribulations and um, what he was experiencing could have been psychoses. Uh, we don't bring that up, but yet he was restored. So even in your battle with mental illness or, um, and even in mine, I didn't lose faith. I knew that God was still going to take care of me. I prayed when I went into court room <laughs> and uh, God delivered me so we still have our faith and it's not a lack of faith that um, an individual is experiencing mental illness 100% and we talk about Job I think about um, I think it's Elijah even Jesus moments before he had to go up to the cross the amount of anxiety and fear for you to start to bleed sweat I mean yeah. <laughs> I think after like my experience and just like getting back into my faith and really trying to take the time to read these stories as well, you realize that the conversation about mental health was always there and somehow over time we've tried to separate it. And yes. I get it, like once you've come on the other side and you've gotten to redemption, it's like there is nothing God can't do. But right. it, it takes, and it's true, 100%. I believe during my time, I had a divine intervention. And I know you've like explained that in your book as well. People who have had near-death experiences and who can explain things and recall situations that were accurate, but they were clinically dead. So, you know, it's in those small moments where you realize that there is something beyond you, that God is still present and he's still there and he can literally pull you from anything. But yeah. at the same time, <laughs> we do need practical steps to help us get to that point of redemption or through, you know, those trials so that way we can get there, you know? Um, and I think the church, at least from what I've observed and like some of like my favorite pastors who I watch online or even at my local church, the conversation is starting to open up. Yeah. But now it's just a matter of creating systems so that way people, when they enter the churches, they feel I'm safe here in every capacity, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's hard because I think, I'm sorry, I'm kind of going on a tangent, but Christianity is so diverse. And I think because, you know, in the Western world, we are only familiar with like one version of it. There's just kind of like, we've become, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Rather like a, a stereotype or a caricature of what it means to be a Christian. And for me, I'm just like, if the fact that we have literally over a hundred different denominations doesn't show you the diversity of it, and that yeah. you have people who are on the far conservative side, you have people who are on the far progressive side, and then you have people all in the middle. Yes. I mean, that just showcases to you that there's a lot of conversations that we need to have with one another. and. Yeah. Like I keep on saying, that's why I really do love your book because it just provides so many thought-provoking questions so that you can have these discussions. Like pick up this book, have a conversation with someone you might not agree with and just listen. And yes. not with the intent to change their mind because 
that's something that I've learned, Dr. Mack, that it's not my job to change people's minds, but it's just to give them things and perspectives to think about too. So yeah, that's needless to say, I'm a fan. Moving on to the next question. I think that's a great po- a point for the audience also, as you are getting my book. <laughs> <laughs> the goal is to share information. And I think with our churches and you have more of the larger and many of the, the pastors I watch on YouTube, as well as at my own church, promote mental health and um and and wellness seeking counseling my own pastor shared um with the congregation and his podcast um his experience going to therapy and recommend and so it's like use your faith and we also use um faith without work is dead in the work may be sitting on a couch talking to someone um but if i'm talking if you're a trained professional but as uh, if you're not a clinician it's not your job to convince someone to believe one thing or the other, to convert them. But to say, and that's my approach on using science, this is what data says about our bodies or our um, our minds, about our um, sexual orientations and how things develop and who we are as people. Now, it's a matter of interpretation and what you choose to believe, even in the face of facts. Some people still go with different information and call it fake news, right? So uh, yeah. um, so we can't ever convince someone that, um, or change someone's mind, but at least share information and allow them to make their own decisions. And I see a change happening in the Christian church that I'm excited about and um, in empowering people to seek mental health and also self-care. So preventative yes. no. <laughs> oh, so true. oh my gosh I just want you to know she's really going to hurt me because I have a feeling this is going to be a little bit longer than I thought <laughs> my gosh this is a good one too so in your book and I think we kind of talked about this a little bit you made a point about revisiting scripture and talking about like the symptoms of mental illness which we talked about with Job but it's about like the spiritual element versus like the scientific explanation so I know like we just talked about, you know, just allowing people to take in the data and make their own choices, but practically is there such a thing as being able to balance it or is it truly just take it or leave it kind of approach? No, I think there is a balance and I think the seriousness of it, I think in one of the discussion questions I ask people when we talk about um, different emotions that we have as a spirit, say the spirit of fear, as the Bible often do, um, you know, describes it. To me, I'll say, well, does that diminish it for you or does it heighten the fact that this is something more powerful that's above you that you need a higher power to help you deal with? It doesn't mean that you're defeated, right? Because the Bible tells us that we are victorious in all things so we can overcome and we are overcomers. So when we began to enter into um, spirits of depression, spirit of, of fear, um, the anxiety, um, addictive behaviors, and whether those could be spirits or equated to spirits, um, controlling spirits, which um, people would then equate with witchcraft, uh, we can then begin to say, uh, how do I fight that? And then begin to understand the behavior, understand that there may be physical cravings or hormones that's being elicited when you're engaged in that behavior. Similar um, um, 
hormones are elicited when you are gambling as having sex as taking a drug so our mind processes it the same way we're just doing a different activity and whether that activity is more acceptable or less acceptable to society it's still harmful to that particular individual so you have to do the work and the spirituality um, part uh, is there as well because I think in all recovery organizations that I know of or programs that I know of, there's the spiritual component where you're bringing in your higher power to help you to accomplish the things that you can't do on your own. So good. Mm-mm-mm. So I do have to skip one only because I promise you she's going to hurt me. I, I don't know if you guys can tell, but there's a sense of fear with my editor here. <laughs> So what is uh, your interpretation of the distinction between the, uh, well, we kind of talked about the soul, the spirit, and the consciousness. So forgive me, guys. We're going to skip that one. Um, How can someone determine whether they are in a situational mood or maybe showing symptoms of a mental illness? Okay, great. So I um, began touching on that with a situational mood that's, I'm happy today um, in this hour when I wake up, I get a phone call, there's some bad news or on the way to work, I have a flat tire, now I'm late for work, so your mood shifts. So from, depending on the situation that you're in, you're feeling uh, or acting out a particular emotion. As compared to a mental illness, say for instance, uh, a diagnosis um, with depression, um, it's sustained over days, weeks, um, a feeling of helplessness, you can't get out of bed, you don't have a desire to get dressed, you may not want to eat, you're not really speaking to anyone. And even if you try to will yourself to do things, you find that you can't do it. So that prolonged and sustained um, uh, symptomology that you're experiencing. Even when people are coming in to talk to you, your spouse or your loved ones, your children, and you can't even will yourself to do something for your child, um, that's leaning towards more of a clue that you may have a mental illness in play as compared to a situational thing where you can simply put on some music and it shifts your, your mood and your attitude. And for someone like that, what are their steps? Because I know like when I talk about like my story and probably you've shared the same thing as well. um, And I know of individuals who are struggling. Sometimes it's really hard to take that first step to go into therapy because it's going to unpack so many things. And we trick ourselves into thinking that if I just hold on to it, at least I know what this feels like. But if I open this up, it might open up Pandora's box. And I don't know if I can go through that. How would you advise someone? I would begin um, oftentimes, well, there are different ways. But for those who may be reluctant, I would say start with baby steps. So begin to talk to a trusted friend or family member. If you're feeling these emotions, to describe how you're feeling of you know, helplessness, if you're um, having suicidal ideation or you're hurting yourself, uh, begin find someone that you trust, whether it's a friend, um, if you're a student or a, a counselor or a trusted teacher, a professor, um, a pastor, or even someone who's a part of the church. When you share it with one person, it gives you the courage and not um, 
And again, it's important to find someone you trusted because it, when people play it down, oh, you're just, you know, that's all in your head. You're not feeling, you'll be better tomorrow. Don't worry about it. Um, but someone who will listen and understand and not judge you. Um, and then together, the two of you can then step out and uh, maybe contact a different person. So if it's a family member or sister or brother in the family, and then talk about, hey, do you know of anyone that I can talk to? in their first inclination, uh, first answer or response, maybe let's talk to the pastor or come to my church and speak to my pastor, or we have a counseling team at my church that you can talk to. You can go to those individuals and then they may refer you to a trained professional. Others may have the courage and, and wherewithal to say, hey, I'm gonna go online, find me a therapist and I'm going in there, um, you know, or go into HR and say, hey, on the insurance, is mental health and wellness covered under my plan? Um, do we have a list of the providers that I can reach out to and schedule an appointment? And um, recently I've done the online um, um, counseling. So um, during COVID, they're uh, using Zoom as a mechanism and um, building relationships. So you can build relationship with that person um, virtually uh, in a virtual setting and um, talk about the issues that's happening. And also understand that it's not a one-stop, one-time fix or even if you're going for three months and then you're like, okay, well, I'm over that hurdle. It doesn't mean that you will never go again or you don't have to go ever again, I'm fixed. Yeah. It should be an ongoing, um, it can be as needed because of course there is an expense to seeing a therapy, a therapist um, and going through therapy that you may not be able to afford. Um, and so you can find some um, for those that may be um, offer free counseling and then period Periodically, when you feel those triggers or feel that emotion, then you can schedule an appointment um, to see someone until you feel that, you know, you're over that hurdle again and you can manage on your own. Such, such good advice. And um, one thing that I also found empowering was support groups. Um, yeah. I think support groups are so impactful because you realize that you're not by yourself that yeah. other people have gone through the same thing. And regardless of like the illness that you might have, it can trick you into thinking that you are somehow unique in this and that it just has to just be you who has the worst luck in the world. It's like, trust us, we're all going through the same thing, yeah. <laughs> just in different ways. Yeah. So, yeah. If anything, if you are doing therapy, I would include it. Or if you are scared to maybe having a peer to peer relationship might also work as well too. And oftentimes they're led by a therapist. So um, it might be a safe environment for you to get some feelers out there before opening up the can of worms to just one particular individual. So that's the only thing I would add to that. Yes. So we're down to the last two questions, Dr. Mack, we're almost there. <laughs> so, um, and I talked about this a little bit before, um, so for people who have had the near-death experiences, you use the term unidirectional flow of memory to explain how patients can recall events accurately despite being declared clinically dead. Can you expand on that for us and what it may reveal about our spirit? 
Yes, no, this is a field of study that's still wide open. Uh, there are a lot of skeptics um, in the field and there's difficulty in trying to measure um, whether the experiences are real. Um, people talk about um, mind triggers or you're recalling stories that you might have heard about near-death experiences. Um, and so they uh, have come up with a test, but in many of the cases, in almost all the cases, an individual describes um, in a near-death experience that their spirit will leave their body and they can look down upon the room and look down at their physical body. They may hear the doctors and nurses talking. They may hear, um, and this is after um, they have been pronounced dead or even in the process of being resuscitated. Um, individuals will, or clinically people will say, well, you actually died, you left us and you came back. We were able to bring you back. And in those moments, there should be no way for the individual who's being resuscitated to recall the events and conversations that are happening in the room. Other than my spirit came out of my body and listened and heard. And when I returned back into my body, I'm able to tell you what happened or um, also recount the journey um, that I went on. Many talk about going toward the light, seeing a loved one or trusted friend that they knew who advised them one way or the other or welcomed them and either told them it's, um, well, in those cases, it's not your time or give them the choice. Do you want to come now or do you want to return? And we hear those stories repeatedly from the from individuals. So we believe that, uh, or it's the sense and confirmations, somewhat confirmations for us that our spirit does leave and go on. There is recognition of spirits who've gone on before us. Um, now, whether or not we retain all the memories that we had on earth or not becomes another story. And I often say, well, that would be a very different experience if we get to heaven and we can remember everything that happened on earth. And now you're there, um, you know, years later, mama, I'm here now. I want to pick back up on that story where you did this when I was eight. You know? <laughs> uh, and, and, <laughs> be the experience uh, uh, that we think of. So, um, but I do touch on the idea of kindred spirits where oftentimes we've encountered a person, we meet them and immediately you feel like you've known this person forever or you've only been friends for two months and I feel like I've known this person for three years or something. Um, it's just we have that connection in weather, uh, which is another totally different story. There are past lives <laughs> and we venture to the earth um, on multiple experiences um, to learn different lessons and become our best self, <laughs> should I say. Um, our spirits um, have information and we recognize other spirits and we're able to come back and convey um, those stories um, to individuals. Again, science, and I often teach that limitation, science is limited to things that can be measured. So if they're in, all we can do is listen to a story on someone's account and memory, which is considered to be subjective um, rather than an objective viewpoint. We don't have a control to compare it to. We don't have an instrument that we can use to measure that experience. So science is limited in its ability to speak to things that cannot be measured. Oh, that's powerful. That is very powerful. I think, like I said, 
before what's so powerful about your book and it's just a reflection of like who you are it allows people to really try to think for themselves on so many different things and regardless of where you fall spiritually politically whatever having conversations and just being able to be comfortable with wrestling with things that might contradict what you've heard or what you've known or what you've believed and being okay with what direction that might take you on i think it would heal so many relationships so many people and i know this sounds a little bit naive but even you know our nation it just feels like people can't come together even if they don't agree on things and this book while it's also experience like not experiencing explaining the power of god and the power of science to explain god it's also allowing you to do the deeper work about yeah. yourself and your relationships so i thank you and i applaud you for this because that not everyone can do that to be honest with you not everyone can do that. Well, i give god the glory and um before writing or every time I write with this book and others, I pray and ask for God's guidance and uh, interpretation or revelations so that people can come to new interpretations. And I often talk about our um, the advancement in our educational system. We are more educated people today than we were 50, 100 years ago. However, many people, when they read the stories uh, or recall the stories, they think they know them because they can say some details. But if you ask a person, well, where is the story of Samson and Delilah found in the Bible? And they can't tell you what book of the Bible. I then say, well, it's probably because you haven't read it for yourself and you're recalling the story that you've heard, which means you're recalling someone else's interpretation of the story and the meaning. Go back a hundred years ago because we had a our educational system wasn't advanced and people didn't obtain advanced degrees. Our pastors were not going to seminary a hundred years ago or some maybe even 50 years ago. So we were largely recalling the stories that we heard from our grandparents and their parents and even from the slave plantation and how the stories were being told to um, enslaved people here in America and we passed that down thinking we knew the story because we really had not read it but today as we are more literate people in a more literate society as we began to read the scriptures and look at them from a vantage point where we have lots of STEM education and an objective standpoint to say well are there other interpretations of this rather than just the one that I was taught. Um, God says for us to ask for knowledge and he would give it to us liberally. So I began asking <laughs> as I would. Uh, when I was asking my mom all these questions when I was a little kid. Like, <laughs> where did they get, where did Adam and Eve's kids get their wives from? Um, and so forth. And That's a different story. <laughs> it was a different That's the other book, right? That I'm doing. But, um, 
we begin to ask questions about all things, whether it's mental health, who we are, how God made me, and can I love myself for who I am, or do I need to change because the church says that who I am is a demonic spirit in terms of my sexuality, my sexual orientation. God knew us before we were formed in our mother's womb, and we are who we are for a purpose and by design. And when we learn to embrace that and embrace the diversity that exists within the hundreds of denominations, as well as our individual um, personalities and beings within this Christian um, faith, because we are the church, we each individually. So um, I think we'll be a better world, better nation, and better and healthier individuals mentally and physically. Dr. Mack, and I mean it, it is my final question. <laughs> so, and technically, it's an exercise. Um, so I have my guests do a gratitude exercise. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to think of a space or a place where you feel the most at peace. And it could be anywhere in the world. And while you're in this space, you are just going over everything that you've been through in life. You're thinking over the moments that were meant to tear you down, but nevertheless, through God's grace, you rose up and you are thriving. What is one scripture, a quote from a favorite book, or a quote from a favorite song that can encapsulate that feeling for you? I'll use the scriptures for Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. And uh, it also um, piggybacks on many of the um, books and things I've read, um, a poem that I learned when I was pledging my fraternity um, in college uh, called The Man Who Thinks He Can. Um, so you are defeated if you think you are, um, but the man who wins in the end is the man who thinks he can. So positive thinking, and faith, which we talk about in the book, thinking that you can do things and thinking things and speaking things that be not as though they were. I can do all things, whether it's overcoming mental illness issues that I'm having, whether it's a personality conflict with someone on my job, um, venturing, opening a new business, writing a book. Uh, I can uh, starting a podcast, speaking to um, people and increasing awareness of mental illness or whatever the case may be, breast cancer awareness, domestic violence. Um, there are many t things that we are tasked to do, but we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And that's the promise that we were given. And that's the promise that I live by daily. Dr. Mack. Thank you so much. This was such a powerful conversation. And again, sorry, Baba, I couldn't keep it to 30 minutes. This was too good to do. I have enjoyed it and thank you for inviting me to share my story. And it's my prayer that someone will be helped by um, the things that we've discussed on today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate you. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you and keep doing the good work. Has the TRP Recovery Podcast blessed you in any way? If so, be a dear and share it with a friend. 
You can follow us on Instagram, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and also stream all TRP Recovery episodes on Exposure TV Network. You can download the Exposure app on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire Stick. Thank you so much, and I hope to continue to help you cultivate not only a relationship with yourself, but most importantly, God. Thank you, and please continue supporting.